Hey everyone, Fraser here. Time for another interview. This time it's with David W. Brown, who is a science writer for The Atlantic, uh, New York Times, Slate, tons of great places. He wrote uh, a fantastic book called The Mission, and it's all about the Europa Clipper. I won't uh, <laughs> read you the, the subtitle for the book, it's too long. Uh, but we got into a wide-ranging conversation just about about the mission, about the factors that came together leading up to the mission, and um, what the plans are for the Europa Clipper. So if you're, uh, if you're wondering sort of what the future holds for the exploration of Europa, this is going to be a great conversation for you. So enjoy. This is just a sea of red. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know the feeling. All right. All right. Here we go. We're going to go live. Right, we should be live. Hey everyone, welcome to a special interview here on my YouTube channel. This week I'm bringing you uh, David W. Brown, who has written a new book, The Mission. <sighs> How a disciple of Carl Sagan, an ex-motocross racer, a Texas Tea Party congressman, the world's worst typewriter saleswoman, California mountain people, and an anonymous NASA functionary went to war with Mars, survived an insurgency at Saturn, traded blows with Washington, stole a ride on an Alabama moon rocket to send a space robot to Jupiter in search of the second Garden of Eden at the bottom of an alien ocean inside a nice world called Europa. A true story. Thanks for that extremely long. Did you have any difficulty pitching that subtitle to your publisher? So I didn't want to have a subtitle at all, and my publisher wanted to have like a five-word subtitle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the magic number. Yeah, <laughs> so you went with seventy something. It was eighty-three words. The, uh, the if they wanted a subtitle, I was going to give them one. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna, and I, I, I'm calling it the story of the Europa Clipper. But wait, the story of the oh six. Oh well. Anyway, uh, the problem that we've run into is that it 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 it's, it tends to break databases at for for different uh, publications like in in bylines and uh, at bookstores. Yeah, so yeah. They, <laughs> it, it's been quite a problem, but I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I think it's great. Um, but I know what you mean that that there are like unintended I don't know year two thousand errors that you're probably punching into various book databases around the world that are that are cracking them. You know. Airplanes are going to be crashing. Power plants are going to be going uh, going offline because you chose a title that doesn't fit within a, uh, a standard Unix database. Um, so, so for people who don't know, who are you? What do you do? Well, my name is David W. Brown. I'm a, uh, a writer. I've been covering the space program for about a little under a decade now. I am also the author of the mission. Um, I, I, my work generally appears in uh, such publications as the New York Times, uh, Scientific American, uh, uh, The New Yorker, Supercluster, all over the place, really. You'll have a hard time not finding my name somewhere. Um, yeah, no, your, your, your writing is terrific. I don't know why you're – I'm dropping frames with you. Weird. Huh, okay, anyway. Um, I don't know if it's your internet, whether it's my internet. Um, the, yeah, no, your work is amazing. Like you are, uh, you're an absolutely terrific uh, journalist. I'm really, uh, really impressed both with, you know, I've, I've read a lot of your writing over the years. Uh, I hadn't read any of your previous books, but I definitely um, have been really enjoying the mission. It is, uh, I'm about a third of the way through and 
you know, I, you know, I've been doing this job for 20 years, so I kind of lived most of this book. Um, uh, am, am I breaking up for you here? Uh, yes. Yes. Hmm. Staggered here. I don't know if this is my internet or what's yeah. going on. I don't, I don't know. Running. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something is, let me try it. I don't even have very much going on my computer right now. Let me try shutting things down if I can. Cause it's just, it really feels like it's, you're just kind of jumping back and forth on my screen. Hmm. I, I just hate... did another interview a minute ago and it, it didn't seem to do this. I can, I can reboot my computer. Yeah, right no, now. it's going to be, it's going to be the zoom meeting. Um, cause I'm not getting any high CPU rate on my, on my computer. So it's something wrong with zoom. Can you leave the zoom meeting and come back in and see if that fixes it? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Two of me. Sorry about that, everybody. But it's clearly something is busted. All right, we'll see if this works. <laughs> plug in the Starlink. Yeah, that's it. Um, I just I should be using Starlink instead of my gigabit internet. That would do the trick. All right, you're back, but we'll see how how long that lasts. You may have to pop back in and out again if this happens. Anyway, um, so so then let's talk about the. Uh, let's sort of start at the beginning. I I mean, there's a bunch of parts that we can talk about, but I would like to first talk about the sort of setting the groundwork of the Europa Clipper mission and that's the G the GMO mission. And it's funny, I actually did a video a couple of years ago where I was like lamenting missions that never flew. And I talked about the terrestrial planet finder. There was a um a European space capsule, like a like a human rated space capsule that never flew. And the other one was GMO, a nuclear powered, um ion engine driven Battlestar Galactica to the uh, the European uh, to Europa and the rest of the Galilean moons, and then it got sadly cancelled. Um tell tell us the story of what happened to GMO. Well, uh, GEMA was part of Project Prometheus, and the, and the goal there was to put a nuclear reactor in space, and in this case, they were going to use it to power uh, what would be the, the Jupiter, Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter. Um, GEMO, unfortunately, uh, came in at a price tag that was just unsustainable. It was never going to fly. And uh, Sean O'Keefe, who was the NASA administrator at the time, it was it was one of his pet projects. He he gave it its, its just full-throated backing. Mm -hmm. um, when when O'Keefe left though, and uh, Mike Griffin came in, I think it was Mike Griffin. Uh, the I, like his first order of business was to kill Gmo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just because it was, it, but but it would have been it would have changed everything. Like that's one of those missions that it really should have flown because they had big plans for it. It wasn't just going to they weren't just going to build one and send it to to Jupiter. They were going to build a, a, an armada of them and just explore the solar system because they they would have an infinite amount of, or a veritable infinite amount of power on the spacecraft and 
that's usually the limiting factor that they run into. Yeah, it's funny. I talked to a, an engineer from NASA about this and says like the first thing you need, your first priority in space is power. Your second priority is power and your third priority is power. Um, and right. and so, you know, your average spacecraft is just running a few hundred watts, a thousand watts at the, at the most. And I think in your book, you were mentioning GMO would be getting like 200,000 watts from that reactor, which is a mind-bending amount of, of energy. But seeing what happened to James Webb and the level of technical... I guess, uh, risk that they took on and the horrible budget creep that went along with it. Do you think the same thing would have happened with GMO? That's a really, it's a really good question. Kind of a, what might've been, I think, um, it, it was a, it was a very small reactor. It was about the size of a trash can. And, um, the idea was, so when GMO was first conceived, we were also building the International Space Station at the time. And the idea of building these giant things from orbit was, it was something NASA was good at. It was a skill set that they were cultivating. And it was something that applied perfectly to, to in this case, a Jupiter mission. Um, they were gonna, it, it would take, it would require three launches and in space, the, the spacecraft would actually be assembled. Right. Um, would it have would it have experienced uh, uh, cost creep and 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 mission complex uh, over mission complexity? Probably. Yeah. I mean, it was a JPL project. Yeah. But um, I I, well, I do believe. Well, I'll stop you there. I mean, JPL actually has nailed budgetary on on the budget side. I mean, you look at things like from the Perseverance Curiosity. I mean, their their missions tend to come in quite quite nicely. It's when you bring in a lot of those outside contractors that things tend to tend to creep up SLS, James Webb. Um, but but I, I found JPL is pretty good at keeping the, the cost under control. But I was just thinking like, you know, you've got that reactor, you've got high powered ion engines, you've got, I know it had crazy ways of getting dumping heat overboard, which had never tried assembly of a, of a mission in space, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, it doesn't, it does feel like there's a lot of, of uncertainty going on. But then, like, I know I'm 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 interviewing myself here, but um, but but the uh, this is like a sore spot for me. But anyway, um, like thinking about having one of those fission reactors in space and and powering ion engines. I mean, that's a possible key to upcoming human missions to Mars, missions to and from the Moon. So there is there's a lot of need for this technology. And... It, it, it was, I mean, the idea was always going to be, this will also apply to human spaceflight. Yeah. And, 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 and what was interesting about GMO is it really brought in all of NASA together to develop the thing. Um, the, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was, a, it was because Sean O'Keefe before being the administrator of NASA, he was uh, the secretary of the Navy and he looked at the Navy nuclear fleet the su nuclear subfleet and said, you know, we could do something very similar, but yeah. in space. Yeah. In this case, it was going to be for. Uh, robotic space exploration, but at, like you said, it had a direct application to yeah. sending astronauts to Mars, and and it, it was a it was a colossal project. When I spoke to Kurt Niebuhr at NASA headquarters, and he's featured very prominently in the book because he was kind of the the person who carried the torch of Europa at NASA in at, at NASA even during its darkest days. Um, he was he was new to the he was new to the uh, he was new to the agency when they put it on his plate and said yeah. he was too he was too young and naive to know that uh, 
uh, they, they, had, they had done him a great disservice by giving him that project. Yeah, yeah. So then let's shift gears then to the Europe, the Europa Clipper. When did that sort of, what was sort of the key that really set that mission in motion? So if you work backwards, so there, there were there were many, many attempts to build a Europa mission. I, I, I would say there's probably, there were six major efforts uh, uh, orbiters of various type uh, yeah. Europa orbiter which was too which was deemed too small then uh, they developed a GMO which was way too big uh, then they developed a Europa orbiter uh, or, or Jupiter Europa orbiter and as part of the Europa Jupiter system mission and this was going to be a joint European Space Agency mission right and that one went pretty far along but it was ultimately killed by the decadal survey each one of these would have, like I said, orbited Europa, but because Europa exists in the Jovian radiation belt, where the conditions are like those in the immediate aftermath of a detonated thermonuclear bomb, like it's pretty inhospitable to, to spacecraft, it's pretty inhospitable to computers, and Europa, so the idea for Europa Clipper came from looking at ways to simplify what was the Jupiter Europa orbiter, and their first idea was we're going to build a tiny orbiter and a tiny multiple flyby mission. One will do the best science you can do just orbiting Europa really fast. It would live hard and die young. Yeah. And, the, and they were also going to build a, a, a different spacecraft that would do the best science it could do that would orbit Jupiter multiple times. And each time it encountered Europa, it would get it would get the moon in a, in a, in a small slice and ultimately build that 360 degree uh, picture of it. In the end, uh, NASA headquarters having a lot of support from Congress and uh, John Culberson in particular, particular at the uh, and and appropriations uh, said, look, well, if we give you a little more money, could see see what studies you could run to make a really an even better orbiter that does as much of the multiple flyby mission uh, science as you could, yeah, or do the same thing with multiple flyby, see how much orbiter science you could do, and in the end. The multiple flyby mission did. I think. I think the number was something like ninety uh, percent of the science for, you know, fifty percent of the cost. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and it was it ultimately the Europa. What do they call it? Europa multiple flyby mission would eventually become uh, known as Clipper. Yeah. Or Europa yeah. Clipper. And 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 that idea is pretty clever. I think that that you know it is as you say uh, incredibly deadly radiation in the inner solar system or in the inner system of, of Jupiter. Even for robots, it's a it's a pretty brutal environment. And so instead, do a fast flyby, zip in, take a bunch of pictures, zip back out, recover. And then send your data home, and then take another crack at it, and you would get, as you say, ninety percent of the science. Then you would get being just buzzing around in that constant radiation zone. Um, another big advantage you get from doing a multiple flyby mission is so the radar, which is going to be looking, is going to be looking at, looking through the European ice shell. Uh, the radar collects unimaginable amounts of data, and with a Europa orbiter there wouldn't be enough time to send all of that data back to Earth. It, the spacecraft would have to make the decisions on what it sends back to Earth. With the multiple flyby mission, because those orbits around Jupiter take so long, that actually allows them to send everything back. And yeah. so you're going to get way more science, particularly for radar science, by having that. So, so there, was a, there were data advantages. And, and like you said, just, just dipping into that radiation and zipping out of there as quickly yeah. as possible, it was, 
it, it, of course, it presented its own challenges. It has to be able to survive in that blistering radiation and then also in a cryogenic yeah. far side of Jupiter. But they, they, they cracked the code. They found a way. And I mean, you know, to sort of limit again, to limit the technical risk, that's the same thing that the Juno mission is doing. So we're seeing that being te that technique being tested out with Juno. And in fact, Juno is going to be shifting its targets to the uh, the Galilean moons next for its mission extension. Right. So it's going to be again, continuing to sort of pioneer getting beat up by Jupiter to see how that treats the spacecraft. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Juno is quite an extraordinary mission. I mean, now it's, I mean, it's basically going to be a sort of small flagship now that it's doing system science. The, uh, but, but its solar panels were also kind of a pathfinder for what would become Europa Clipper's uh, solar panels. Because previously the idea was we've got to use uh, radioactive or, or, or uh, uh, RTGs, whereas now, now they're not, they don't have that limitation. And that, that saves a ton of money, not only because plutonium is in short supply, but because when you launch nuclear material, it, it, there are a lot of regulations that you've got to go through, and and all of the all of that swept aside yeah. just simplifies everything. Yeah, it's like uh, I think it's like one twenty fifth the power out of Jupiter. Like it's just a fraction of the power. So you just have these gigantic solar panels. But with you know that's one of the technologies that NASA has really helped improve is the is the power and density of of these these solar cells. So I mean, Europa Clipper is going to have a standard complement of of you know, spectroscopy and, and all, you know, cameras and so on. But there's one very special instrument on board that took a lot of wrangling to get. And that is what you mentioned, the, the ground penetrating um, radar systems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, from, from the very start, um, the Europa team, this goes back to like 1998, said there are, there are some floor science that we have to achieve. And without this science, there's no point in flying a mission there. Like there, there's, we, we can't cut these things. What ended up happening was, uh, and, and so radar was studied from the very beginning. And I think, I think the first meeting of the radar team was like in 1997. And that was led by Don Blankenship, who's now out of uh, University of Texas at Austin. Great guy. Uh, he's actually, my next book is, is actually about, in part about him. Oh, good. But um, yeah, yeah. So the, He's an Antarctic scholar, and he flies radars over Antarctica, which is a perfect analog for what, yeah. want, what they want to do at Europa. But so it's been under refinement and consideration for for decades now. It is um, there have been some some technical challenges that had to be overcome, and I mean even in the even in the review process, JPLs had to create something called the Integrated Wing Review, is what they called it, uh, to sort of be, I guess, verify the, the, the engineering behind it. What we're going to see in the long run, though, I think is NASA hanging radar off every set of solar panels that it puts on, a, on an interplanetary, interplanetary spacecraft. I mean, they've, they've, they've done something fundamentally new here, and it is a, it's a, it, it'll result in a, a sort of a paradigm shift in, in uh, space exploration. But that, that radar, those, the radar and the solar panels, if, if, you, if you're un, for people unfamiliar with the size of Europa Clipper, because, I mean, these spacecraft look tiny on, on the pictures, <laughs> but it's about the size of a, of a regulation basketball court. Like yeah. Enormous. Yeah. And uh, so, so that, that's going to be one, that radar is going to be one heck of an instrument. And, I mean, it is gobbling up a huge chunk of the, of the power on board the spacecraft. I mean, it was a, it was a really tricky instrument to get approved you know we can like have 
the radar or half dozen other really interesting instruments that would help us answer a lot of really important scientific questions. What does that radar get us? You know, what, you know, looking under that ice, what is, what is the hope that they're going to be able to find? The, the, the primary thing that you're going to get and that you're certainly looking for is um, the ice ocean interface, right? So um, when you, where that ocean meets ice is going to tell you everything you need to know about the habitability of the ocean, what might live down there, um, and, and what is what is its nature. It, I, I mentioned Antarctica earlier, but a good example of that is the, the ice in Antarctica. When you see a picture of, of that continent, it's pristine white. It's, you'll never see anything whiter. But if you look on the un underside of the ice, it's disgusting. <laughs> I mean, it's gunky. It's brown. Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most repulsive things I've ever seen in my entire life. And if, if we can see that, we can see what that looks like. We can see the nature of that. I mean, obviously you're not going to see it at a microbial level, what these things are doing, but, yeah. but understanding that ice is going to tell you, an, or that interface is going right. to tell you an awful lot about the nature of habitability down there. And one of the big discoveries that's been made in the last couple of years is the, you know, a fairly firm confirmation now that Europa has geysers in the same way that Enceladus has, has geysers. Has that changed the thinking at all about the mission, its priorities, some of the, the ways it's going to work? Right. Well, the mission, it, it, it's, I think it's fair to say that the mission probably would not have been approved when it was, if not for those plumes. Mm -hmm. um, NASA beat the drum hard whenever, whenever they were discovered by uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. And um, it, it, it was an elegant solution to a difficult problem, right? If there's life in the ocean, that's, that's great. But how, how do you get to the ocean? Like it's science fiction right now getting to it. Yeah. So having the ocean come to you, well, that's, that's fantastic. Now, some of the problems, uh, now, it, just to clarify, it, it is a distinct possibility that those plumes are created, not are coming, not directly right. from the ocean, but from lakes inside of the ice, like waters is coming out from, or water vapors coming out from there. Um, the, the other challenge that you have at Europa with its plumes versus Enceladus is um, their unpredictability. Like, there's still a great uncertainty about how often these mm -hmm. plumes occur. And, uh, and so you can't just plan a mission around, well, we're going to encounter the plume every third orbit or whatever, because it might end up being a target of opportunity. Like there's plumes and someone has to make sort of a Captain Kirk decision. Right. Let's fly through it and risk the spacecraft because it might never, we might never get another plume again. Right. So it's, there, there's an element of adventure that, that those plumes introduced to this mission that I can't, I don't think any previous uh, robotic mission has has yet in, has yet been through. So I, yeah. that, that's one reason I'm excited about it. And even like right now, as we're talking about it, like I think at the recent AGU meeting, some people presented this idea that that you got um, impacts on, you know, asteroid impacts hitting Europa, causing these under ice lakes in even like fractures in the ice where water can move sideways, and then pop up again in different locations. So doing that, that radar mapping of the planet will probably definitively answer that question once and for all is, is it a 10 kilometer thick chunk of ice? Or are there pockets of water that are closer to the surface? Are they connected down below? These are all really interesting questions that we still don't even have the answers to. Let's talk about the launch vehicle. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's it going to launch on? 
it's going to launch on a Falcon Heavy. Uh, I, I think that's indisputable at this point. I believe there's a law in the United States right now that says that it's not, but I'm, you know, I'm open to hear your, your proposal. Well, so, right. If we go back to the beginning, and this is a story that I talk a lot about in the mission, um, if not for SLS, Europa Clipper might never have been approved. And Europa Clipper, likewise, was was a great benefit to SLS, which was billed at the time as a moon rocket or, or a Mars rocket. But we weren't going to Mars for 30 years. Like that's it, it was an absurdity. And SLS needed a place to go. Well, Europa was a place. And it, it is also the first rocket whose engineering, whose design was directly influenced by um, a, a robotic spacecraft. So, it, so, it, so Europa Clipper has that distinction and to, SL, to the credit of the SLS team, they, they worked closely together. Mm -hmm. Once Artemis came along though, that relationship, I mean, SLS just, just dropped Europa like that. Um, well, but it's still on the docket. I mean, right now it's, you're looking at um, the moon roundabout flight and then you're seeing i think two artemis missions in the, in the works right now and then still europa clipper is on the is on the is on the the manifest but so so during so for the last several years um europa clipper was tied directly to sls it was legally required to launch on that rocket in the most recent appropriations bill though that language was changed to say sls or if it's unavailable right and um, commercial launch can match the capabilities X, Y, Z. There were two conditions actually. Um, then you may fly on the launch vehicle or, or on a commercial vehicle. And that was a huge thing. And yesterday, in fact, um, the solicitation for launch services was posted on the federal, uh, on, the, on the federal, it's called SAM, the, the, the system for uh, acquisition. And, um, and I, I, I mean, I talked to quite a few members of the Europa Clipper team yesterday, and it was a, it was a moment of deliverance because now at last SLS, which again helped everybody get this far, yep. has become in the last two years an actual an impediment to progress. So they're going to have to make a decision very quick. I imagine in the next couple of weeks it'll be made official. Yeah. Um, but once they do, Europa Clipper can also complete its critical design review. At JPL, I mean, you can't, they can't really go to the next step without having a launch vehicle selected because they've got to tighten the screws in just such a way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure you're right. It's, it's almost certain at this point that it's going to launch on a Falcon Heavy. What impact does that have on the, on the flight time? It's going to be a, a, it'll be, I think the number I saw was like something over like six and a half years or something like that, um, which is obviously longer than SLS, which could do it in three. But, one of the things originally one of the problems with falcon heavy was of course it could lift europa clipper into space but the problem is you would have to add all sorts of thermal protection to the spacecraft because it would have to do a, a venus flyby but after having now a few falcon heavy launches in the books they were able to run the numbers and they realized that rather than doing a venus flyby they can do what's called they can use what's called a mega trajectory uh, at mars which is almost never done. So that's kind of exciting. A Mars gravity assist, come back to do an Earth gravity assist, and then just slingshot it out right. to, uh, to Jupiter. So, so fly to Mars, back to Earth, and then back out to, to Jupiter. And I guess, I mean, you get a chance to do, you get to test out the instruments, figure out if everything's working with your Mars flyby, do it again with your Earth flyby. So there are some benefits to those gravitational assists as, as well. But 
Oh, you sure. Know. Yeah, no, that's it's 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 going to be a uh, they're going to it's going to be a great benefit. I mean, and they, I they, mean, the NASA price doesn't waste a minute. Yeah, I mean, the price of a, of a Falcon Heavy is like, what, 90 million dollars compared to SLS at like a billion and a half dollars. Like, right. like, will the Europa Clipper team get a chance to see any of the cost savings if they actually do go with the with the Falcon Heavy? Or is that just going to get absorbed by NASA and other places? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I'm pretty okay. sure that that if I'm not mistaken, originally they weren't going to be charged for the uh, for the SLS launch. So I'm not sure. If, I don't I don't know where the money for the for the Falcon Heavy launch comes from. But NASA is going to save so much money. And yeah. To be perfectly frank, I, I, there's no way that your that SLS is going to get yeah five launches. It's going to get one. I think it's going to be one and done. Um, and I, I don't mean you know I don't mean it to be negative toward yeah. the SLS team. It's just I don't think there's a lot of political will to keep it going. Yeah, yeah, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, I keep people keep asking me, like, will SLS ever launch? And I say, yeah, it'll launch. It'll launch once, maybe three times. There's three interesting missions in the books right now. I can't imagine it launching many times after that. Assuming, though, like this is all depending on Starship, actually doing what it promises, you know, if all Starship does is just, you know, explode in the atmosphere for a decade, then, as it, you know, as it's returning back from space, then you can imagine, you know, it SLS having more, a longer duration that it's that it's continues to have work done on it. It's a it's a tricky time, because it's like there's bigger, more ambitious places that people want to go. And at the same time, there really isn't a launch vehicle that is absolutely proven to do that job. As soon as right. the space shuttle was canceled, there was no real proper heavy lift vehicle around, and Constellation turned into SLS, and so on and so forth. But but who knows if you know Falcon Heavy gets human rated, if Blue Origin gets human rated, we'll see. Um, so let's talk about the lander that nobody wants. What would you like to talk about? <laughs> well, how how did the Europa team get? Uh, I don't know, saddled with the lander. So. Um... Obviously, the Europa Lander is a, is a completely different project from Europa Clipper. Uh, Europa Clipper is going to determine the habitability of, of Europa, and it's going to find you know the most habitable spots on that world. And it's also going to characterize the surface. We don't know really know what the surface of Europa looks like. We've got a very distant view, but we don't know. It, it would be like trying to land a spacecraft on Earth if you only had a picture taken by Apollo, and, and you're trying to land in Central Park. Like yeah. it, it, it's just not possible. Um, the lander itself. Uh, uses uses uh, actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, perseverance technology uh, as part of its as part of its landing system. But uh, the 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 lander came along in the first place because it was an interest of John Culberson because he wanted to get beneath that ice. And um, where Europa Clipper determines habitability, lander actually saws like 10 centimeters under the ice and starts sniffing around for evidence of things that once wiggled. Um, <laughs> hundreds of millions have already been spent on the project like it's it's it is a very refined it's a refined study and and i've seen demonstrations of what the technology would look like and it's incredibly elegant i mean the legs are like spider legs wow the way that it lands and adjusts because again it's not like they're going to land on a flat surface yes. and they have to be able to get the body of the spacecraft or, or the lander close to the ground for that arm to go in and start sawing um whether and 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 it's again just as Europa Clipper goes in and out of that radiation, Lander has to marinate in the least <laughs> hospitable place in the solar system, and it just has to sit there, and and do its job. So, 
it, it's it would be an extraordinary achievement if we could get that thing flying yeah. and eventually landing. A big problem that it had is that so so the planet, as you know, but I don't know if everybody knows, the the planetary science community uh, operates with something called the Decadal Survey. It's sort of a consensus community document uh, that. Uh, looks at all of the prior, the scientific priorities of the planetary science community, what we want to solve, how we want to solve it, where we need to go to solve these problems. The last decadal came out in 2013. Well, it came out in 2011 to be implemented by 2013. Europa Lander wasn't on anybody's, wasn't really on the radar at all at that point. So it didn't get any prioritization amongst among flagship missions the top was mars uh uh, sample return second was uh, a europa orbiter and then third was like ice giants yes please the midterm the midterm decadal survey um recommended to the decadal panel when you do this survey make sure you prioritize lander in there because it is something that has congressional interest um so we, it'll be interesting to see where it prioritize, where it comes in the priority queue. And if, for example, the Ice Giants mission can be achieved in a New Frontiers budget, well, that, that can make things pretty interesting. I mean, there might be room for a lander in that point. I mean, you know, I'm being overly glib about the, a lander that nobody wants. Obviously, a lander would be at the top of almost every planetary scientist's list of to-do list. But we saw even just recently with 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 Mars Insight unable to deploy its mole mm-hmm. um that you've got the, you've got a place that's been mapped down to 1 square meter even less you we understand a tremendous amount about the regolith we understand the about the gravity of the environment the radiation environment of how to make spacecraft land on Mars and do their jobs and it has been unable to deploy its mole because the they don't understand exactly how the regolith works, how many rocks are down there, and, and just the behavior of the soil itself. To go to a place that you don't even know what it looks like, what the what you know, is it gonna be covered in in ten meter tall ice sharp penitentes? Is it gonna be um mush radiation churned slush that as you you said a couple of times you know these things land and they may just keep on landing (laughs) sinking deeper into the into the sludge we don't know what it's like there and to and to come up with a rover and so like i can see why they're very risk averse to be able to do that and then on the other hand you know you look at the work that say jaxa is doing with 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 a lot of their innovative concepts with hayabusa 2 they'll throw every crazy idea they can at a space rock to see what lands and and science returns so i'm kind of torn if i had to make the call i would definitely go with the crazy robot lander uh, spider lander it's well it's interesting that you say that so i talk to a lot of scientists and engineers at jpl all the time and one thing that i've heard with regard to lander is look the the, the motto at jpl is dare mighty things Okay, we can we can build a uh, an orbiter like Psyche all day long. Yeah, but are we? But if you want to dare mighty things, like if you want to do the impossible, if you go even going back to the, the Viking program, right? Two landers that landed perfectly on Mars—that's insane that yeah. they could do that. And these were not small spacecraft. Um, Europa lander would be the sort of galvanizing project that would attract and inspire a generation of engineers. I don't want to sound like I'm a commercial for the Europa Lander, 
I do think that Europa is the sort of um, celestial object that requires a sequence of missions. Just doing one is not enough. Just like for Mars, that has required multiple missions in order to understand that world. If Europa is determined, particularly if it's determined to be uh, very habitable, gosh, it has everything you need for life. It would, it's too, too tantalizing a target to just leave there and go explore elsewhere. Yeah. We talked about with, or, you know, like NASA has sort of slowed down the, the search for life in the solar system back with the Viking mission with the sort of the problems that happened with the Viking experiments, NASA sort of took a step back and followed the story of water very carefully. With Europa, you've got a place that's potentially a lot more exciting, you've got liquid water, you've got um, hydrogen, probably, you know, in the water itself to provide fuel for microbes, you've got minerals that are mixing in to provide various other things as well. It's pretty easy to get very excited about the potential for life. And yet it's trapped under kilometers of, of ice. And it's a very difficult thing to find. How do you how did you sort of what impression did you get from sort of that that tentative movements forward to search for life without overreaching? The um, the, Europa, the core Europa Clipper team from the start has has really pushed for or, or been been very smart about not embracing science fiction, but going with what we can do, um, and, and with a budget that is practical. Obviously, mm -hmm. G mode, for example, did not have a practical budget. That was just not going to fly. Um, but that was that sort of came down from above. And if the NASA administrator says we want to do this, then we're we're going to try to find a way. Um, in the case of of Europa, our our Europa presently and exploring the ocean, like you said, it, it, it's that that's a liquid salt water ocean with hydrothermal vents at the bottom. I mean, they know what the surf with the bottom of the seafloor of Europa looks like because you just look at Io, and it's going to be basically Io covered in water and ice. Um, you've got water touching rock, which is critical because that's where you get interesting chemistry. Whereas at Ganymede, for example, it's probably ice, water, ice, and you can't really get that chemistry there. Um, you also have uh, the way the the way the plate tectonics of Europa work. Um, those those the, the ice is being pushed down into the ocean, and that uh, and because and so that's oxidizing the ocean. So you've got you've got just an incredible um, sort of an incredible recipe there for life and for conceivably complex life. Now, in terms of what what next, right? Because you're always looking forward. After that, you you do need to touch that ice because you've got to and get beneath the irradiated. Right. Earth. You see the gook on the bottom of the of the yeah, earth. and then getting to the ocean. Now that's that's hard. Yeah. Like that's that that's still science fiction. And and there are, there are ideas for melt probes where you land some sort of radio you know a radioactive spacecraft on there and just let it yep. let it heat up with, through decay through natural decay and it could just sink down in there. And that's one proposal that I've seen. I think that's probably the, the yeah. They're actually the doing that in Greenland. They've actually they're actually practically using um, melt probes in Greenland to sample mm -hmm. under the ice. And it's actually quite fast to to make its way with a fairly small probe, you can you can actually descend through the, the ice fairly rapidly and reel out a, a wire behind you. So, so it's interesting how a lot of that technology has been tested. But you're exactly right. It is absolutely science fiction. And so back to that, that fortunate 
um, sort of discovery of the of the the plumes. Do you think now that we know so much about what's happening with Enceladus, thanks to Cassini, Enceladus would be a better target than Europa? There, I mean, there are quite a few studies right now, and, and I believe I don't know for sure, but I know I know that there is a there is a uh, a robust Enceladus uh, uh, group. I think they are submitting a, a flagship proposal for for Enceladus now. One thing that Europa has that Enceladus doesn't is time. Um, Europa's had something like five or four billion years for that ocean to to make life if if, if it was going to experience its own genesis. Um, and I I think it, I could be very mistaken here, but the last time I talked to somebody about it, they they didn't think that Enceladus had the time equation hmm, okay. that, that Europa had. But that doesn't you know that it, that that stuff has undoubtedly changed since the last time I talked to somebody yeah is Enceladus and it's a much easier place to explore for sure yeah because y you don't have the radiation there and uh it would certainly be a compelling target of exploration but it, when, when we talk about the Enceladus you know exploration I don't know I guess you need to you really need to have a good context for Enceladus. Did Cassini get everything you would need? Uh, obviously, Cassini didn't launch when Cassini's the one that found all of this interesting stuff about Enceladus. I think originally Enceladus had like four flybys. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It. And then it turned into this extraordinary target of exploration. So we'll we'll see. We'll see. People yeah. much smarter than me will make that decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, or maybe that's what they'll, they'll save the money on the SLS launch and they'll they'll build a copycat of Europa Clipper and although that would be tricky at Saturn I can't even imagine the size of the solar <laughs> the solar panels to be able to get any power while you're out at Saturn but that's another technical challenge to 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 go with so I would love to hear um any sort of really big surprises that you uncovered while you were doing this the research for this for this story what are some what's some stuff that uh uh sort of surprised you while you were working on it the, the I guess the primary thing that surprised me very early on was the um, not antagonism that's not the right word but certainly rivalry between the outer planets community and the Mars community because Mars is going to get a mission every two years yep. it's much easier to explore you can get there quickly um, and astronauts are one day going to stand on Mars which for NASA being a human spaceflight organization first and foremost means that sending a rover there is not just doing science, it's a human precursor mission. It's buying down risk for that future astronaut, uh, that future astronaut mission. Um, the outer planets are hard. It takes a long time to get there. It's gonna take an average of, you know, maybe six years to get to, to, get to Jupiter, to the ice giants. I mean, I, I, I can't remember the 2040s yeah yeah 20 i think 20, you know, yeah 2030 by the time we get a flagship if you have a, have a flagship orbiter yeah you're looking in the 2050s yeah and and that's i mean when you think about that that the people who are trying to get this thing going will be dead by then and that's one of the beautiful things about planetary science we live in a a world that does not really give a lot of um give a put a lot of stock in uh delayed gratification we want it now and I just admire the heck out of people who are willing to put in this extraordinary amount of thankless effort, countless yeah. studies, countless rejections from NASA, countless rejections from the science community 
and still keep going not to answer the questions, which is why you become a scientist in the first place to answer yeah. question X, but just to enable the next generation to answer that question. That to me makes this an extraordinary group of people doing something that you just don't see these days. And, and I, you know, my hat's off to them. Because of the challenges of exploring the outer planets and particularly Europa with, with the radiation problem, um, whenever NASA, which is perpetually short on money, has had to make a choice, do we do this incredibly difficult thing at Europa or do we do, or we go to Mars? Yeah. And the answer is, well, we'll just go to Mars. Like that's way better. And uh, for, for a good stretch of time there, it's the way it was described to me, it was, it's impossible to overstate how, how, how just antagonistic NASA headquarters was internally to an outer planet's flagship mission. It was just, it was a non-starter for a long time. Outer Planets flagships, uh, they say the flagship is an F word there. Like yeah. you just, you don't say it in polite company. And um, and so that that did surprise me because from the outside, look, from the outside, it, it, it just makes perfect sense. Of course we would explore mm -hmm. Europa. I mean, follow the water where, they, well, Europa's got three times more water than the planet Earth. Like, I think we found it. Let's yeah, see what's it's right there. there. Yeah. But, but if you're having to make these hard political decisions at NASA and, and look, so I interviewed an awful lot of people who were very antagonistic toward a Europa mission. And because in one of the things I tried to do in the mission was make uh, the, the book, the mission is make sure that there are no villains per se, like everyone's the hero of their own story. And I wanted to make sure the people who are antagonistic toward a mission, well, what was their rationale? What was their reason? Yeah. If you're on the Europa team, you think, wow, these guys are really mean. Yeah. But when you talk to, say, Ed Weiler, who's the former head of NASA, the NASA Science Mission Directorate, he had some pretty good reasons why. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was cost, it was challenge, it was priority. Um, Na NASA has uh, an unprecedented track record now for, for consecutive landings on, consecutive successful landings on Mars. Obviously, and, and, um, you know, from that point of view, well, why would you interrupt the successful thing that we're doing? Well, when why you look at, yeah, I mean, you look at, say, Cassini. I mean, Cassini shut down, what, like three years ago, maybe? Um, it had been at Saturn since 2003, 2005? Anyway, um, so it had been there for, whatever, 12 years plus, but it had been flying to Saturn after many flybys and gravitational assists since the 90s. Um, it was conceived back in the 80s. So you're looking at the early 80s. You're looking at, yeah, anyway, you're looking at 40 years of of life cycle from from idea to end of spacecraft. And you think about the technology that could be put on a, on a mission like that. You think about the you know, some of the newer under, you know, scientific understandings, it's dramatic. And yet, here we are, now without a vehicle at Saturn, kind of just feeling sad and feeling like there's a right. part of our heart that's missing. And, well, let's get started. And we'll see something there in, in 30 years. Right. And that's, and that's always the problem is that you've got this really rapid technology cycling that you've got like, Hey, we've got faster chips. We've got better solar panels. We've got better reactors. We've got, we've got new instruments. We can make them lighter, smaller. We can use CubeSats. 
and then but you've got to have that really long persistence of vision to to actually see th all the way through past multiple administrations um to get there cassini had a had a tortured oh yeah uh, all right so a couple of the things about cassini that, that i found interesting when i was just researching the book um I didn't realize, for example, that Cassini was almost canceled for the International Space Station. Oh. Congress, Congress presented NASA with a choice: we're going to give you money, pick one. Yeah. In the end, they were able to they were able to keep both alive. But Cassini had a twin spacecraft called Kraft that was canceled. Yeah. Um, I think they, also... they went to the Russians. That's how they solved the problem. Was they they asked for the <laughs> Russians' help to build the space station? The, well, the, that, that's that in itself is an interesting story. Yeah. The um. Cassini also had so originally its instruments were on gimbals and so it would be able to run multiple instruments at a time when it was doing a pass and just get extraordinary amounts of data because of budget cuts the easiest thing to do was just bolt those instruments onto the spacecraft and so you could only take measurements from whatever it was precisely pointing at or whatever that instrument in particular was precisely pointing at so it led to huge infighting during the cruise phase of Cassini because people who had promised their institutions X amount of science were suddenly having to fight for time on each orbit in order to get that. So uh, yeah, Cassini, Cassini was really put through the ringer before it finally, yeah. uh, before it finally got to Saturn. But nobody remembers that now because it did such extraordinary science. So that's a testament to how great these scientists are and how hard they're working. And you know, when you think about something like say the Titan Dragonfly, like that, everyone is incredibly excited. A, a nuclear powered helicopter on Titan, yes, please. But again, 2035, like be right. patient. This is not going to happen anytime soon. And they've already started building it. It's going to take a long time. So it's, it's tricky. Like I, it, it feels to me like, like they almost need to have some kind of release schedule that's independent from like every two years, we send something to the outer solar system. And then every two years after that, we send something to the inner solar system. We iterate the technology on the inner stuff and we stick to the plan with the outer solar system, knowing that we're going to be glad that we had Juno, that we have Dragonfly, that we have the Trident mission, New Horizons, right? A 10 year flight time to get to Pluto. That's right. And what you, one of the reasons I wrote this book in the first place was, um, because of something alarming that I'd heard. This was a few years ago. This was before this was before the Pluto, long before the Pluto encounter. But somebody pointed out that look, after Cassini ends, after New Horizons completes its flyby of Jupiter or of uh, Pluto, um, and after Juno, because remember Juno was originally going to have Juno was originally going to have a very rapid lifetime. It was going to it was going to enter a very tight orbit of of uh, Jupiter. Yeah. But a, uh, a thruster problem caused it to begin having these enormous orbits and gave the gave the spacecraft a much longer life cycle. Um, but the the conversation that I had was these spacecraft are all going to end, and for the first time since I think like 1979, yeah, there would be no active mission in the outer planets. And I found that deeply disturbing, yeah. just as a as a human being, like to to sort of seed three billion. Ye or, or, or you know billion or, well 600 million miles be and plus plus yeah. however far out you are of humanity's footprint for that to disappear it just felt wrong to me but we and know what that feels thing. like that's that's 50 years after the apollo missions that's what it feels that's that's what it's going to feel like is it's why haven't we been to the outer solar system it's been 50 years 
right, is how it's going to feel. And and so, like, spoiler alert, you're going to feel sad. Everyone right. who 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 voted against it or has been j- focusing on these short-term quick missions to Mars and mm-hmm. Venus and whatever, the moon, is going to just – it's going to wake up one day and say, wow, it's been 50 years since we've been to Saturn or 50 years since we've been to Neptune and – I think, thankfully, the New Frontiers program seem, and just technology development in general seems to have advanced to a point where we might be able to see a, a robust and much faster cadence of missions. And that's one of the arguments that I've heard in favor of using New Frontiers to explore yeah. the ice giants. is like, you know, we're looking at the 2050s minimum, and that's if there's no problems. And every flagship mission in the history of flagships has run into... Political interference, uh, technical delays, um, yeah. and and there's no reason to think that an ice giant's flagship would go any easier than any of the previous ones. That which which means if we can do something with a tightly focused new uh, principal investigator led mission, let's do that. Yeah. Flagship should be the space should be the spacecraft class of last resort. And uh, yeah, I think Alan Stern and, and the New Horizons team really defined the way to get that done. But I mean, that's a, I mean, you cover a bit of his story and the, the story of just getting New Horizons rolling in the book as well. Um, but it was a, it was a brutal challenge to get that spacecraft flying at all. And yet I think we're also grateful at the, it, at the pictures. It, it speaks to their tenacity. I mean, yeah. can, can you imagine spending, what, what did, what did Alan do? Like six different spacecraft concepts to Pluto and he kept getting rejected every time. And yeah. Just, well, let's try. Let's try number six. Yeah. And eventually, he got that yes. I mean, we have a New Frontiers program specifically because they needed to find a way to get a Pluto yeah. mission going. So, I would definitely. I think I would. I would choose like Trident, which is that the the mission oh, yes. to, to Triton. Absolutely. Fly by a new like in, a twin of New Horizons. That's job is to explore through, although Alan Stern would disagree. Um, he wants to go back to Pluto, but still, right. um, you know, let, there's a bunch of interesting moons that Uranus has, has Miranda. Like there are all these really fascinating places in the outer solar system. Triton seems to have plumes too, which right. is weird for a place that's so, that's so distant. So I think that, I think I, you're exactly right. I think, I think the New Frontiers missions is the way to go and just stick to the schedule and every X amount of years, a new one of these is rolling off the assembly line and going out to the outer solar system, and you'll be glad that you did down the road. I want to uh, I want to give people a chance to to ans- to ask you some questions. Um, Arjon asks, "Will there be a camera like normal on the Europa Clipper?" Uh, yes, there will. Be, I don't think NASA will ever fly a spacecraft again that does not. <laughs> well, what about Juno? Interestingly, yeah, what, what an extraordinary achievement Juno is. Those images. Jupiter. Yeah. Who would have thought that's what Jupiter looked like? Um, yeah, but it almost—they almost didn't didn't fly with a camera, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, and, and can you imagine? So I so <laughs> I think NASA learned exactly the value of that. Now, the, the camera instrument under development right now is having some financial challenges, uh, trying to sort of stay within the cost box. And it, it's possible that they could fly without, for example, the wide-angle camera, and they would just fly with a narrow-angle camera. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, it, the wide-angle camera is going to give you those big, beautiful shots of the planet, or, of, of the moon. 
Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they've got that under control. Uh, but, but yeah, no, it's interesting. You would think the cameras would be a fairly easy technology to handle, but nothing's easy at Europa uh, with yeah. that radiation. Yeah. yeah. Um, Conrad Bailey asks, is the pressure in Europa or Enceladus oceans low enough for life to be able to thrive in? Do they think that the environment down there is habitable at this point? Is there any, any, any pre big, I mean, are there any like big scientific questions that about, about that environment? Like if it's just liquid water and it's got food, then life can handle it. I think the, the, I think the outstanding big question would probably be the, probably be the pH level of that water, you know, is, is Europa's water, is the ocean battery acid? <laughs> because that's a different, you know, that's a different, uh, environment than, uh, than if it's like the Pacific ocean. Yeah. I'm sure so, life can find uh, a way. Life can definitely find a way. There might indeed be velociraptors down there, but the um, we we always say the European space whales. That's well. That I'm hoping that the like when, at the end of mission for Europa Clipper, I'm hoping it's flying through a plume and a fish is blasted into space, and the last thing we see from that camera is like you know some terrified eyeball looking at us, and and then and then nothing. <laughs> right. I believe that was a movie. Um, T-Home asks, uh, so this is all going to be sterilized so that we don't contaminate Europa with our filthy Earth life, right? I mean, uh, so Europa Clipper, right, has undergone, uh, it's had quite a difficulty with, uh, not difficulty, but it, it's expensive to do spacecraft de decontamination and to, to fly it sterile. Um, and it's an engineering challenge. It's, it, it's not the safest thing in the world to stick the whole spacecraft in an oven and bake it until it's <laughs> pristine. Um, which is what, you know, they had to do that for like one piece of the Phoenix lander for Mars. And it was a, it was a terrifying experience for engineers. I, I mean, they baked all of the Viking, pro, the Viking spacecraft. So I guess, I guess it's possible. But anyway, yes. So the spacecraft is going to be decontaminated and it's um, when it eventually, because eventually the mission will end, the idea is going to be um, maybe sending it to IO. And if you're going to crash it somewhere, be pretty pretty impressive pictures on the way down oh yeah yes please that was one of the other um the new horizons missions or no sorry new frontiers missions they were considering was was a mission to io mission yeah, to io mission to triton years. and two missions to venus and right. that was sort of before the phosphine uh discovery undiscovery right. the book is the mission uh david if people want to uh find out more about you your work uh, keep track of, of your reporting, where should they go? Uh, well, I have a website. It's DWB, like my name, dot IO. Um, you can also find me on like Instagram and uh, Twitter at, at DWB writer, W-R-I-T-E-R. Um, or you just, well, if you type David Brown into Google, you won't get far <laughs> because there are so many of us. I know, I know. That's why you got the W. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That, that's where the W comes from. Yeah. Um, well, you, the book is fantastic. I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to go on my book of the year already. It's, it's, it's so good. Like the writing is if, you know, if this title, if this sort of the snark of this title is your bag, then this book is utterly filled with, uh, with that level of, of, of humor mixed with really solid reporting. It's a, it's a phenomenal piece of work. So congratulations on getting it out the door, doing the reporting. 
um, and enjoy the back-to-back -back interviews over the next, uh, you know, they'll, it'll, it'll be all be down from here. Um, <laughs> it, this has been so much fun. This is, this is, you're, you're my favorite interview in the last hour. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much. Congratulations. Uh, don't be a stranger. Let me know when you've got that next book written. Uh, I can't wait to, uh, to hear about it. I absolutely will. Thank you right so on. much for having okay. me. I'm such a fan of the site, by the way. All right. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, man.